This is an ABC podcast. I'm standing in the Royal Hall of a capital city for a kingdom of millions. In front of me, the wings of a copper bird are reaching out. That was the middle, that was the centre of the empire. For centuries, European visitors raved about this place. It's actually. The feeling was quite visceral, you know, like, it's something like out-of-body experience. Except none of this exists. At least, not today. It's February 9, 1897. Any moment now, those palace doors will come crashing down. An army will set fire to it all, ransack the city, and nothing will be left. Thousands of people are are murdered. They were stolen, they were looted. The savagery that was uncovered. Nothing except something which is stuck to the pillars of this very hall. Something very, very valuable. And it still does feel like an injustice. In the days of the British Empire, things were taken. Objects which tell us about the world we have today. My name is Mark Fennell, and this is Stuff the British Stole. Welcome to Nigeria. If I were to take you around, <laughs> they are all over the place. Even my pen holder, I'll show you my pen holder right now. More specifically, welcome to the home office of my dreams. You are going to hear some clatter, so I don't know if you can see it, you know, so... Victor Ekimeno's studio is filled with art, which I guess isn't overly surprising given that he is a world-renowned artist. But it's these incredibly detailed metal sculptures scattered around the room that your eye just gets drawn to. That is is a contemporary one. That is a bronze. I don't know. Hold on. Let me see. That is a bronze. That is beautiful. Yeah. There are stylized human heads with intricate metal patterns, animals, different sizes, different shapes. Some of the colour of dusted copper, others almost this military grey. But you can tell they all share a sort of aesthetic DNA. The sculpting is done in a very detailed manner. The hairstyle Victor is, grew up not far from a place called Benin City. Now, there is actually a whole country called Benin, but Benin City is a part of the country of Nigeria. It's famous for these intricate metal sculptures around us. And every one of them has their own tail. This is called the bed of prophecy. Right now, Victor is waving what looks very much like an ibis, its wings outstretched to give a sort of non-committal, I'm doing this because I have to hug. When you hit it with a, a metal, it makes noise. The bird of prophecy is what they call an idiophone. It's a stick designed to make a sound, essentially. And it's a replica of a staff that the king of Benin, the Orba, used to have. Why a bird? Well, the story goes like this. The king wanted to go to war, and he had to check with the oracles first. And they told him the bird has to speak to tell him if he can go to war or not. Ultimately, the decision about whether to go to war fell to this bird. 
but the bird said he can't go to war. Yeah, the Oba was not a fan of this. And the king was like, a bird should not tell me to go to war. And the king <laughs> and the king said, I'm breaking from that tradition and I'm going to slaughter this bird. He declared that no bird should tell him whether he could go to war and bugger off that tradition. He then killed the bird and... Next time everybody wants to go to war, beat on this <laughs> idiophone. And so these are histories, okay? So these are oral histories Amazing. and stuff, okay? They are for us very important things. They are functional both spiritually and physically. These sculptures will also be forever linked to one of the most horrific mass murders to ever occur on this continent, which isn't something that became real to Victor until 2017, when he was preparing for one of his first ever solo shows as an artist in London. Before the launch, he wanted to see something, or rather things, that every kid raised in and around Benin City knows about but relatively few of those kids get to see it in person. I've only really read about them, saw them in, um, in books. Lo and behold, they were at the basement level of the, of the museum. There, down on the lower levels of the British Museum, Victor Ekimeno came face to face with one of the darkest chapters in the history of his homeland. It's like seeing your age grandmother that you didn't know existed, but you have heard so much story about it and you eventually meet that grandmother and you find that that grandmother is in chains. They're called the Benin Bronzers. These haunting metal plaques of kings, queens, warriors and children, each of them protruding out of a slab of weathered ancient brass. Think Han Solo, frozen in carbonite, but more dignified. It was really... It was really painful to see how the things were displayed and how much of it were actually stolen and they were displayed very openly. It was a bit uh, off-putting in a way that this is not how... They, they feel out of place. Thousands of visitors from Nigeria have had the exact same reaction that Victor Ekimeno has had to seeing these objects hanging in London. But to understand why, we have to go back to the days when Benin wasn't just a city, it was an empire. The empire was over 2,500 square miles. This is the voice of Nwando Achebe. She is a Nigerian-American history professor talking to me from Michigan State University. And surrounding that capital was a dense series of walls considered to be an engineering feat. Four times longer than the Great Wall of China. So that gives you a sense of the grandeur. So... Take me back. So what was happening in the lead up to 1897? So this was a time when the British effectively occupied present-day country of Nigeria. And during this time, they created treaties, treaties of trade, of protection. The Kingdom of Benin, financially, was very attractive to the British. The empire had resources, ivory, palm oil, peppers, rubber. The British wanted to be able to trade with the Oba and the Benin Kingdom. And they actually managed to get Benin to sign one of those trade treaties. But it came with a catch. That the Oba 
would have to, at all times, consult with the British about all affairs. So, of course, this treaty wasn't fair. And from what we know from history, most of these treaties were actually very duplicitous, right? And they oftentimes explained their, their conversations with Africans were very different from what they actually put down on paper. So most of these African leaders did not know that they were signing away their dominions. Which may explain why the Orba would carry on as though he had no treaty, and would say things like, Nobody is trading. I am shutting down trade. But the British decided to essentially take him out. And this is how it went down. The empire at the time was celebrating a very important festival called the Igwe Festival to renew the Oba's supernatural powers. It was also celebrated to cleanse the empire of unruly spirits. We are going to come back to that cleansing later. But on the British side, we have a new player. Somebody called Captain John Phillips. He sends a message to the Oba to visit with him to discuss issues of trade and peace. However, we know that that's really not what Captain Phillips was going to do because he had sent word to London telling them the real reason for his visit. He wanted to depose the Oba. Whether the Oba could see what was coming or not, we don't know. But part of the Igwe festival is that the Oba cannot be around foreigners. And so he said, no, you cannot visit. This is not a good time. But Captain Phillips didn't care. And he decides to visit anyway. They get to Benin and they are considered an invading force. And indeed they are. They were ambushed. Everybody in that gathering was killed. But one European that managed to escape. Among the dead was Captain Phillips. And the fate of the Kingdom of Benin was now sealed. Britain decided to launch a punitive expedition on the empire of Benin with 1,500 soldiers, Maxim machine guns and rockets. And they essentially raised the empire to the ground. It was the most brutal massacre. The numbers would be in the thousands. We don't have a clear number. The British plundered all of the royal treasures. This is how those bronzes came to hang in the British Museum. And to this day, Nwando can pinpoint the exact moment she saw one hanging in a museum. I think I was no more than 17 years old. I remember looking at my dad and saying to him, Daddy, what would happen if I break open (laughs) that and just take... No, because I just could not understand. And I still can't understand how unjust it is. Thousands of people are are murdered because of this. That's not enough? You don't think that's enough? You go ahead and you pillage over 4,000 art treasures of people, by the way, that you are saying are savage, people who you say are, are cannibals, people who you say are primitive. 
And then you turn around and refuse to give us back our art. So I'm on the website for the British Museum and I think reading through it, you can tell that they've copped it for how they've come to own these bronzes. They do a bit of a a sanitised version of the story that Nwando just told you. But as for addressing that demand that they be returned, the closest you get is a paragraph about them being willing to establish a new museum in Benin City with a permanent display of Benin works of art, including significant collections of work currently in UK and European museums. Now, the thing is, at various different points in history, the museum has offered to loan the bronzes back to Nigeria, which goes down really badly with Nigerians. That is an insult. You cannot loan back that which is not not yours. They all need to be returned as soon as possible. And it can be done. In fact, it has been done. It involved a decoy, two cops, Kensington Palace, and very tangentially, Batman. Okay, this is um, on, on a golf golf resort, actually. Um, it's a lodge, and it's very near Chelmsford. It's about five miles um, east of Chelmsford. Chelmsford is about an hour out of London, and it's most famous for being the birthplace of radio, and also the place where I tried to convince yet even more British people that we really don't drink Fosters in this country. No, no Australian I, I, actually I, I, drinks Fosters. <laughs> <laughs> the only time I've ever seen Fosters has been in London, and I've been like, looked at it and went... Why do, why do they think we drink that? That's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> Assembled today in Chelmsford, we have... My name is Timothy Hawiemi. Um, um, I still work for the Metropolitan Police um, UK. Tim Awayemi has the biggest, broadest smile you have ever seen. Perhaps matched only by the smirk on the man next to him. Yeah, Steve Dunstone, I'm an ex-sergeant um, in the Metropolitan Police. I was the final 10 years was royalty protection. Um, Am I allowed to ask which which royals you looked after, or is if you told no, me you had to kill me? I, I, no, no. So I, I was not a personal <laughs> protection officer. I was a counter terrorism oh. security advisor. It, I could keep out most terrorists, but it was the super superheroes that I had a problem with. Um, Batman caused us five hours of horrendous publicity one day on the balcony of Buckingham Palace. Basically, a protester once scaled the walls of the palace dressed as Batman, which was a huge security breach. <laughs> And probably a copyright breach too. After their years working at Kensington Palace, Tim and Steve are the most delightful double act. But we can't do without each other. (laughs) Tim was born in the UK, but spent many years growing up in his parents' homeland of Nigeria. I left with my parents when I was about um, three and a half years um, to Nigeria. And just for clarity's sake, Steve is white. Although there seems to be some dispute about that. Tim always jokes on a black man in a white man's skin. Well, well, that's that's I call him. That is just a black man in a white man's skin, actually. <laughs> These are absolutely not the men you expect to cause a complex diplomatic incident and an international smuggling operation. It all starts back when they happen to be on a recreational historical expedition trip to Nigeria back in 2004. Somebody walked towards Steve and um, uh, slipped a paper in, um, in his hand. Did you check the paper? Well, we, we were just leaving and I put the piece of paper in my pocket. And I think it was that, that evening when I actually opened up that, that letter. Yeah. 
and it was just, can you please help us return the Benin bronzes? And to be honest, I did not know anything about Benin bronzes. Something about the mysterious piece of paper shoved in his hand piqued the interest of the lifelong cop. And it, it wasn't really until I got back. I, I started delving into the history and, and the story surrounding the Benin bronzes. In, in the minimal research I did about that story, it appeared to be an injustice. So I started to put all, all the stuff onto a website. If anyone has got any news, any information about any of the bronzes at all, would they get in touch? Did anyone respond in, once you put it up, initially? Honestly, it, it was so discouraging. Nobody responded. Well, not quite nobody. There was an Australian fisherman who contacted me. <laughs> oh, no. Um, and he said he found a bedding bronze in his fishing net. Really? <laughs> so he sent me some images as a rusty old bucket thing. Um, but I think he wanted me to send a load of money first before he sent it over to the UK. <laughs> so I give that I give, give that one a miss. Yeah, that one seems like a bad deal to me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in any event, the website at this point looked like a massive failure. And just when we were about doing a U-turn, I said, no more. Mark Walker came out of the blues. I was really pleased when Mark Walker came forward. Sorry, who is Mark Walker? I'm... Uh, a retired consultant medical microbiologist. Mm, Topical profession, but probably not the most important thing to know about Mark Walker. Well, I'm the grandson of one of the soldiers who went to Benin as part of the punitive expedition in 1897. Uh, His name was Herbert Sutherland Walker, and he went out as a member of the Special Forces He brought back with him, like most of the other officers, many objects from Benin, two of which survived in my branch of the family. Right, so, Mark, if if you were to sit the bronzes in front of me, could you just describe what they actually look like? They look like lightly tarnished brass, yellowish and brownish in places. One of them is a bell. It's about six inches tall. The other one is a ceremonial bird of prophecy a bit like an ibis, and during ceremonies the official would strike its nose with a, with a metal rod to make it ring, and apparently this was to remind the bird that its prophecy that the Benin people would be defeated was wrong. Sound familiar? Except unlike Victor Echimeno's bird, this isn't a modern recasting. This bird is from the 1897 destruction of the kingdom of Benin. Not that Mark had any clue growing up. My earliest memory was, um, I seem to remember that one of them might have been used as a, as a doorstop. A doorstop. The true history of these objects didn't become real until Mark's mother handed him, one day, a book. The diary of my grandfather's involvement in the expedition made a lot of the savagery that was uncovered when the British overran Benin. The horror of the place, they found hundreds of bodies in various states of decay. There's a frenzy of human sacrifice during the British advance on Benin, apparently an attempt by the Beni religious authorities to get the gods on their side. And this is the other side of the fall of Benin. The kingdom had a long history of human sacrifice, 
In fact, sensational reports back in London helped bolster that economic desire to take over the city. When the Orba knew the British were coming, reports show he did indeed commit more brutal sacrifices in an attempt to turn the cosmic tide in his favour. In one passage, a slave has been pegged to the ground uh, with a goat and both slaughtered in an attempt to frighten them before they advanced any further. And yet, flicking through these brutal first-hand accounts in his grandfather's diary, Mark Walker made a decision about those two Benin bronzes that had been sitting quietly in his family home, keeping doors open. It might be better for these objects to be looked after by the descendants of those that made them rather than by my descendants. So I I looked around for information about Benin bronzes and came across a a webpage recovering bronzes that have been taken from Benin. And that is how Mark Walker entered the world of Tim and Steve. He said, I've got something in Oxford that you might be interested in having a look at. That was it. And I'm thinking, it's got two bronzes. It's just just the way, the manner and the text and the tone of the message. But Tim and I then visited him in Oxford. Not only to see these two items, one was a, a bird and one was a bell, but it was a magnificent diary. It felt momentous, to be honest. Um, this is, this is, it was, I took an image of the, from the diary. Now, that is about 5,000 Benin bronzes just after being hacked off the walls of the royal palace, all lined up to go on, back onto the boat. Now, in his diary, he's got the word loot written underneath that he put himself. So they knew they were, they were stealing them at the time. But how did two Kensington Palace cops and a retired microbiologist manage to return a Benin bronze to Benin? Well, it turns out it's a hell of a lot more complicated than you might think. We were stepping into a, a minefield. We liaised with the Nigerian High Commission in London, who would indirectly liaise with um, the president in Nigeria. But Mark Walker didn't want to give it to the president. Mark made it clear that he wanted his items to be returned to the king. He wanted to give it to the Orba. The spiritual home of the bronzes. Oh, yes. There is still a modern-day Orba of Benin, a descendant of the one chased out by the British. However, what used to be Benin Kingdom, as I mentioned earlier, is now Benin City. It's a city inside the country of Nigeria. Nigeria has a president who is looking for a photo op. What was going on behind the scenes is uh, the president, His Excellency um, Goodluck Jonathan, has getting some negative press. So he sees this as an opportunity. Now that later caused some, <laughs> caused some reverberations. And I hand you over to Tim, who was summoned privately to see the High Commissioner. I've got a strange phone call from the embassy that I should come to the embassy. I was summoned into a room. Negotiation started about how they would um, get the artifacts to the president and not to the Benin community. Why do you think they thought you were the right person to do that? Oh, well, they thought uh, maybe um, <clears throat> I might want to dance to their tunes anyway. They, they thought I would vibrate on the same level. Let me use that language. Uh, Tim held firm. I made it clear that um, the person who has the artifact says it goes to the Benin community. That was the point when the Nigerian government stopped being helpful. They, they decided that they were going to wash 
their hands off the whole thing and that they're not going to sponsor us. They withdrew the offer of support for the flight out. So the three men started formulating their own plans to get the bronzes to the orbit of Benin. But according to Steve, the Nigerian president hadn't given up yet. I don't think he wanted to take no for an answer because we later learned from the High Commissioner that um, he'd planned a press conference to receive the two bronzes at Abuja Airport, completely against our mm. wishes. So we're going there to go from Abuja to Lagos to hand over to the king, and the president was going to be at the, at the airport to receive these. So I realised this is a political quagmire. And when we actually passed the information back to the royal household in Benin, the Oba decided, right, they will pay for our tickets direct from London, not to Abuja, but straight to Lagos, and get the local police to pick us up from the airport and give us a police escort with the items to Benin City. Passengers Mayandi and Fan Galapin. And so, in 2014, ten years after that paper was slipped into Steve's back pocket, they were finally fulfilling the promise to take at least two of the thousands of Benin bronzes home. Tim, Steve and Mark all boarded that plane to Nigeria. On, on the flight, we were so convinced they were going to take those bronzes off us. Bear yes. in mind, you can imagine the we power of the president <laughs> of Nigeria's got. Um, we put the items to a third person, so it wasn't connected to us. In case we were stopped and our baggage was... was uh, and so we met the third person outside the airport. We had police escorts, we had cars in front of us. There were huge billboards about hands and over ceremony yes. with the bird and the bell all around the city. There was a very elaborate ceremony attended by hundreds and hundreds of people. We squeezed ourselves through the crowds into that hall. Eventually there was a loud cry from the crier and then the, the hubba came to his throne so that was quite, you know, it's quite a surreal moment. And with that, the bronzes were handed over. I was almost mobbed by the crowd. Young boys, seven, nine-year-olds, old men, old women, all wanting to touch me, shake my hand. And you look them in the eyes, and there's tears. There's a 70, 80-year-old guy, his tears are rolling down his cheeks. Then, only then, did it really impact on me the depth of feeling and passion surrounded these two items. Can I tell you my favourite part of this story? So after all the effort the three men took to return the objects... During the handing over afterwards, um, there was two leopards' heads that were commissioned by the king. I've got, I've got them here. They're actually here, sitting next to me. Oh, my word, they're massive. <laughs> Just so you know, the table actually shudders when they put these golden, elongated heads down on the table. They're about a stone each. Quite magnificent leopard heads. Uh, one given to me, one given to Mark. And he turned around and gave his to Tim. Why do you think that is? It is returning what he feels was taken away and they're still giving him something back in returns. <laughs> I think in his head he's thinking, I don't want more luggage anymore. I don't want loads anymore. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was thoroughly embarrassed, as you might imagine. I didn't deserve all of this. I was only doing something, I felt, which might help with the wider problem of how we're going to reconcile our different histories. The people of Edo State still feel like they're fighting for their own history. These two bronzes may have been returned, but as you're listening to this, hundreds of Benin bronzes still sit overseas in the UK, Europe and America. We are now in a generation that understands what their ancestors did was wrong. We need to return some of these things because you have made so much money from it. It was what funded your own war in the first place. The reason Victor Echimeno had that reaction when he saw them hanging in London is because they are not just loot. They are blood art. We now know from the letters that Captain Phillips sent back to London is that this massacre happened in part because of the bronzes. You wrote back home and said, guys, don't worry. We've seen, it. We've seen enough artworks and all of those things that we feel we can sell to offset the war if we had to go to war with these people. They knew they could pay for the war by selling the art on the wall. It was premeditated. While it's unlikely that every piece of stolen art will be returned, Victor and other artists like him have decided the time has come to reclaim, at the very least, the art form. So I have taken up that tradition of also making works in bronze, you know, so... Uh, I make them go to Benin, I sculpt them, then I go to the traditional place and they do it for me, they they cast it for me in the very old way of uh, casting the bronze so that we can continue the tradition. It's a a living culture. Benin tradition is a living culture. It's not not something that, that is dead. Stuff the British Stole was produced by Zoe Ferguson and myself. Executive producer is Amrutha Slee and Julie Browning is the head of Society and Culture. Mixing and sound design by Martin Peralta. This is a production of ABC RN and it was created and written by me. My name is Mark Fennell and here's a hint for the next episode. It yaps. <laughs> 